Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety and nine righteous persons need no repentance or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it and when she has found it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right, good morning. On your way to uh, Luke 15, we're going to be looking at three parables. This summer, as we've said, we're going through different parables of Jesus, and uh, this morning we have three parables. Parable of uh, the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. So will be, uh, and Pat read the first two, we'll get to the uh, the other one. Shortly, let's make sure we understand why the parables are being shared with us. So look again at Luke 15, uh, 1 and 2. To understand what a parable is saying, you have to understand why in the world it's being told. And it tells us here in Luke 15, 1 and 2, why these three parables are being communicated. Let me just read it again. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Him is, is Jesus, verse 2. And the Baptists and the scribes grumbled, saying... Pharisees and the scribes. I got that wrong. I should tell you, I can make that joke because I've been a Baptist almost my entire life, so I I get to uh, make that joke. Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So that's the accusation. This man receives sinners and he eats uh, with them. So in that time period in history, to receive somebody, you could say hi to them and greet them, uh, and to have a meal with them is really in many ways to communicate a sense of affinity, closeness, brotherhood, even a sense of approval. And uh, so the religious leaders were communicating that Jesus, by eating with tax collectors and sinners, was uh, communicating some sense of approval towards the tax collectors and sinners, and they took exception to that. Why did they take exception to that? Primarily this. Jesus was presenting himself as the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, uh, and they didn't like him as the Messiah. They wanted a different version of the Messiah. They had read the Old Testament, were familiar with it, and were interpreting that really according to their own agenda. And they were looking for a different kind of Messiah than Jesus was. So now they were on the hunt for reasons to show he wasn't the Messiah. And uh, um, the evidence uh, that they're presenting here is the Messiah would never. And they would say it like that. Well, I would never. Anybody ever said that to you? 
I would never. And, and this is what they're saying. The Messiah would never eat with these people. He would never associate with them, thus commuting a sense of uh, affinity as well as a, a sense of approval of who they are and what they stood for. And so what they were uh, uh, really communicating was an age-old error. It's an error that is still very common today in churches and the culture at large, and it's this. God rescues those who deserve it. God is going to rescue those who deserve his uh, rescue, which in fact is another way of saying God rescues those who don't need rescuing. Because if you deserve his rescue, then you actually don't need it at all. And what Jesus does is he presents these three parables to communicate something true about God. And we're going to try and develop it as much as we can. Uh, But here's what it is. Jesus was concerned that they might... uh, have misunderstood his intentions with the tax collectors and sinners. What was his concern? His was concern was that they wouldn't understand nearly how much he loved being with these people. His concern was, oh, oh, you think I'm associated with it? Oh, no, you've, you've got it wrong. I enjoy it. You, no, you've got it all wrong. Uh, you think I'm, maybe my reputation is being marred. You have no idea. This is actually what I do for fun. This is, I'm actually having a great time. I'm not even being forced to do this. I'm not being sent uh, uh, against my will to do this. I was looking forward to nothing better than this evening. I get to go and have dinner with tax collectors and sinners. I'm giddy with joy over it. So he really wanted to make sure that ta- the, the religious leaders didn't misunderstand his point. He might, I might say it this way, being a bit sarcastic. He was concerned they didn't understand nearly enough how close he wanted to be with these folks. They said, well, he's uh, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Oh, no, no, you don't understand. We're best of friends. Uh, We are really close. So he tells these parables to show why that is the case. And here's the reason. It's the title of the message. God is the God of the lost. God is God of the lost. First thing I want to point out from the first two parables is he takes great joy in finding. God takes great joy in finding. Two parables. Parable of the sheep pair of the coin. So you've got a shepherd, he's got a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep wanders away. And so he's left with 99 sheep. Now many of us might say, well, that's only a 1% loss. What, that's not too big a deal. But even back then, one animal being lost is a pretty significant deal. The shepherd would have wanted to retain his sheep. He would leave the 99 because he has a sense the 99 are staying. They're not going anywhere. They're sheep. And, uh, but you've got this one rebel sheep. And so he's going to go and find the sheep. And what it says is he leaves the 99 behind, and when he finds it, he picks it up, throws it on his shoulders, carries it back, and the point of the parable is verse 5. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, and what's the word? Rejoicing. The shepherd has taken great joy in finding the sheep. He's filled with joy at finding it. In fact, when he, he has so much joy when he comes home, he gets his friends together. He calls together his neighbors. Rejoice with me. I found my sheep. He was lost, but I found it. And what he wants to communicate here is there is great joy in this shepherd in finding lost sheep. He's not offended by the lost sheep. He's not annoyed with the lost sheep. He is filled with joy at the lost sheep. All of you know this kind of person, maybe a mechanical person. And their car breaks down and they are delighted. Maybe you don't know this kind of person. I'm not that kind of person. The car breaks down. I'm annoyed. 
But the car breaks down and they're delighted. Why? Because they get to work on their car. And they've been looking for a reason to open the hood and get dirty. And now their car is broken down. It's like, well, I'm going to have to spend the afternoon out in the shop. Sorry. They're all giddy. Well, this is a shepherd. He's got a go bag. He's like, lost sheep. I'm on it. Like he is waiting. He is waiting to go and find sheep because the way he is telling this story, notice he doesn't say when the, when the sheep wanders off, the shepherd stomps out in a huff. Stupid sheep. He doesn't say that. What he doesn't say is critically important. That the shepherd, the only thing we know about the shepherd is when a sheep is lost, he seeks it, and he's overwhelmed with joy in finding it. He is a seeking shepherd and a finding shepherd, and he is overjoyed in finding it. When he brings the sheep back, he doesn't chuck it in to the pen and say, you're going to be a tasty sandwich. He doesn't do that. He is overjoyed. He calls his friends and neighbors together, and he is overjoyed to be the shepherd who finds uh, sheep. He receives them. It, there is nothing different now. That sheep is now set, not set in the, the timeout pen. This, the, the whole point of him telling this parable is the shepherd is communicating something which is true about God. God is a seeking and finding God, and he takes great joy in it. Something we need to understand, and I think we mentioned this a bit last week, when God does things, he always does exactly what he wants to do. He always does exactly what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And you and he can argue about when that ought to be on lots of different things, right? He never does what he doesn't want to do. God doesn't get painted into a corner. God's never left with his second best option. Everything God has always done has always been his best option. It's always been done when he wants to do it. And when he's doing it, he's delighting in it. He's never begrudgingly having to come and find us. He means to find us, takes joy in the finding of us, takes joy when we're brought back home. All of this communicates something about God's nature. We presume upon God that when he finds us buried under some bush or somewhere, he is going to be grumpy as all get out. And that's not what this parable is saying. This parable is saying is this is a joyful shepherd who is glad to have found his wandering sheep. This is what God wants for his people. Back in 1 Kings chapter 22, you don't have to turn there. A prophet was talking to King Ahab. Ooh, come on, you got to do the sound effects. Okay, he was talking to King Ahab. Ahab was a terrible king. Uh, and this is what the prophet said to King Ahab. He said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. So here's this king supposedly doing the will of God for his people. And one of the charges is you are a shepherd that's not like the shepherd. Because the shepherd cares for his sheep. And in fact, the shepherd takes great joy in caring for his sheep, even seeking those who have wandered away. Verse 8, Luke 15. There was a woman. She had 10 silver coins. You have no idea how much these coins are worth. doesn't really matter. She loses one coin. She wants that coin. doesn't matter if it's worth 25 cents or $1,000. The point of the parable is she wants to find the coins she lost. She lights a lamp and sweeps the house, seeks diligently until she finds it. That's a normal activity. It's normal when you lose something you want, you do whatever it takes uh, to find it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors 
saying, Rejoice with me, I have found uh, the coin that I had just lost. So she seeks the coin, she finds the coin, and having found it, she calls together her friends and says, I want you to come and rejoice with me that what was lost has been found. Again, that same theme is going between both of these parables, which is this. God is overjoyed in finding that which is lost. What's his attitude toward finding that which is lost? Rejoicing. Overjoyedness. That's not a word it is now. It's an overwhelming joy of getting people together. There's one kind of joy where like, yes. There's another kind of joy where it's a two-hand fist pump. Yes. Then there's a whole other kind of joy where you call people up and say, get over here. We're about to have a party. And that's a whole other kind of joy. That's the kind of joy God has in finding lost things. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You probably have this memorized. But we're going to spend just a minute or two in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 4. But God. Why is there a but God in verse 4? Because of verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sinners who deserve the punishment of God. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. When did Jesus love us? When did did God express his love for us? In verse 5 of Ephesians 2, when we were what? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Worst of the worst, bottom of the barrel, terrible news. Not only are you a sinner, your sin killed you and you were happy with it. In that moment, God loved us, according to the scripture here. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he expressed his love toward us. Okay, look at verses 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians 2, if you have it open. In those verses, what are the things you do? Look at there. What are you doing in those verses? Or what are people doing in these verses? There's a number of verbs in there for you grammarians. There's a lot of verbs in there. God raised us, made us alive, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. Again, what, what are the verbs that we're doing? There isn't one. If you're looking, there isn't one. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The joyful finding God comes to those dead in their trespasses and sins. He raises us up because he loves us. He seats us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. God seeks those in joy. He loves us in our, uh, the state we were in, and he delights in us in rescuing us. Why in the world would God... Love and take joy in finding those who are dead in their rebellion and their sin. The Bible tells us in verse 7. So that. What is so that? Purpose. Right? Why am I grounded, Dad? So that you won't do that again. See, it's it's very simple. Why did God uh, love us when we were in our sins, raise us up, and seat us in heavenly places? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
God has storehouses on storehouses on storehouses. The kids nowadays say stacks on stacks on stacks of grace. And he goes, and I want to show off my grace. What do I do, guys? Find people who need loads of it. He goes, oh, I got those and I got stacks and stacks of those too. So he goes and he finds people like you and me, dead in our trespasses and sins. He says, I want to show off how gracious I am. I'm going to raise you up so that I can therefore show off for all of eternity how full of grace I am. This is what God's nature is like. This is what he is like. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Okay, go back to Luke 15, verse 7. Luke 15, verse 7. Guy finds a sheep. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God is illustrating what is going on in glory when we turn to him in repentance. It's a party. God is filled with joy. He is filled with joy to display his grace to the angels. None of the angels are going, God, you are being taken advantage of. Dude, they are just walking all over you, man. None of them. They're all having a party because they are so overwhelmed with the extent and nature of God's joyful graciousness and life-given to us. This is the theme of he is God of the lost, meaning he takes great joy in finding. He takes great joy in pouring out grace. He takes great joy in bringing us to uh, himself. All this is in the context of Jesus having dinner with tax collectors and sinners and the religious leaders looking at why in the world would you be in a place like that? So some of you have had kids, some more recently than others. Maybe you've been in that spot, you're downtown Medford, Pear Blossom a Festival, whatever, and you've got your little ankle biter next to you and holding hands, you turn over to talk to someone, maybe grab a corn dog, turn around, and that kid saw somebody else wearing the same pants you had on, and now they're holding hands with some stranger, you don't know where they are, right? And it, it takes about 30 seconds to go from zero to a thousand panic mode. Where's my kid? And it's just, it's a, so you're, guy, you go to the meeting place, security, where's my kid? And somebody says, yeah, actually a guy came by here and he, and, he, and he saw a kid walking by himself. And, uh, and the way you're describing it, I think it's your kid. And he came and he mentioned it because he saw the kid and he thought we ought to know about it. And uh, so he told us. And he said, well, where's that guy? Uh, oh, yeah, we saw him go. He went, he went right over there and he's having lunch. And he points across the street. And across the street is the office. Good. The first of us knew what that was. It's a gentleman's club. He went in there. He's going to have lunch and enjoy the entertainment. Which parent is not going to go in there? Do you have any problems going there and ask that guy where your kid is? Anybody have a problem with that? Anybody going to judge the person? You, you know, really, as a Christian, you shouldn't be going in there. Oh, really? You can take a hike. You know, that's what we would say. That guy knows where my kid is. He's in there. I don't care what that joint is. I'm going in there to talk to that guy, and I'm going to find out where my kid is. And none of us would be bothered by that. Jesus is sitting in the presence of tax collectors and sinners seeking his children and the religious leaders are looking down their long religious noses and saying how in the world could you possibly be in a place like that and jesus says, how in the world could i not be and the problem we have is some reason we think that the office has more sin in it than this place does 
That's the mistake we made. When Jesus left heaven and landed on planet earth by God's grace becoming a man, he was already in the office. The whole place is broken by sin. There isn't a one square inch of this creation that doesn't need to be redeemed. And there aren't spots that need more of it. It all needs to be redeemed. He's already in the junk. When he came to see you and me, he's in the worst place. And he says, where else could I possibly be? How could I not go in and find my children? And Jesus takes great joy and delight in going in and finding his lost ones and bringing them home. God of the lost, he takes joy in finding. Quick question, we're going to move on to the parable of the lost son. The coin has value for that woman, one coin, uh, however much it was worth. The sheep has value for the shepherd, uh, whether it is destined for a sandwich or destined to be uh, sheared. But someone would ask this, when God finds me, will he be disappointed in what he finds? How could God find value in me the way the shepherd found value in the sheep and the woman found value in the coin. Will God be disappointed with me? Luke 15, 11 through 32, God is God of the lost. He takes joy in outcasts. There was a man, he had two sons. The younger of them said to his dad, dad, I want my inheritance. Did dad give him his share of the property? The son then liquidated, turned it into cash. Not many days later, he took a trip, went on a long journey, and he squandered his dad money, dad's money in reckless living. We'll get more details on exactly what that reckless living entailed from the older son later on in the parable. When he had spent everything, we don't know how long it was, but when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose, and he began to become in need, and nobody was helping him. And so he got a job working for a Gentile. Oh, no. Feeding pigs. Oh, my. That's how you're supposed to read that story if you're not doing the motions. Does your Bible have motion cues? Mine does. Okay. Uh, so he went and he hired himself. He was feeding the pigs. And he was looking at the pig food. And he's saying, man, that looks pretty good. Anybody else fed, fed pigs? I have never once said to myself, I could tuck into that. I've never once desired pig food. This guy was so hungry, he was willing to eat pig food. When he came to himself, he's like, what am I thinking? How many of my father's servants... They have more than enough bread to eat, but I'm sitting here starving to death. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to my dad and here. I'm going to give him this speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This makes, that's a good speech. So he gets up. He went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his dad saw him coming towards him. His father ran out to meet him, fell upon his neck, gave him a big hug and a big kiss. And his son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father interrupts his brilliant speech. The father said to his servant, bring the robe. Bring the ring. Bring the sandals. Get the fattened calf. What is another way of saying? It's about to get rowdy up in here. We're going to have us a party. Get the fattened calf. And he brought it and they slaughtered it. My son was dead. He is alive again. He was lost. He was found. And he began to lecture him on good money management. No, he didn't. What'd they do? Party. Beat drop. DJ got going. And they just, they went to town. And you think this was a quiet little party. You're sitting in the corner playing Jenga or whatever. No, it was so loud the kid out in the, the the kid working out in the field could hear it. That's how big a party this was. This wasn't just a little party. This was a rowdy party. The older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. He heard music. What else did he hear? 
Dancing. That's some serious dancing when you can hear the dancing. Must have been square dancing. Guy's calling out moves. Okay. He called one of the servants. He said, what's going on? And, and his brother, he said, your brother came home. Your father killed the fattened calf. Older brother knew exactly what that meant. He's been received back safe and sound. And he was angry. So now the older brother is standing in for those religious leaders back in 15, 1 and 2. Jesus is eating. The parable, the parable 15 started with a meal and it's ending with a meal. Jesus eating with sinners and now the father eating with sinners. And so here we have the older brother watching the father eat with a sinner. And he responds in anger the same way the religious leaders responded. And this is what he says to his dad. He's angry with his dad. Look. All these years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command. You've never given me single young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you spent all your money on prostitutes, you've killed the fattened calf. The father says, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate. It was fitting. It was appropriate to be glad your brother was dead. He's alive. What was lost? is found here's a question we should ask ourselves after reading this parable what does god do for fun when god is planning his weekend and he is looking forward to friday night what is he looking forward to doing he is looking forward to spending time with outcasts people who are lost who have come back and been found god takes great delight in receiving and spending time with those who need to come back to the Father. Those who have been outcast religiously and socially, but primarily those who have been outcast from relationship with the Father because of their own rebellion. This lost son is a social outcast and a religious outcast, but in the end, this lost son knows what his dad is like. What does he know his dad will do when he comes home? He knows at a minimum he'll get some bread to eat. But he also probably knows his dad will throw a party. And we need to understand what God is like. God celebrates those who come back to him. The father derives great joy in his dead son coming back, putting the robe on, the ring on. Those are signs that he is not receiving him as a servant. He is receiving him as a son. Killing the fattened calf is the, a, a special celebration. There might be any number of celebrations, but... The fattened calf is a particularly significant celebration, and the whole neighborhood would have heard that this was going on. One of the primary themes of this parable is the great joy of the father in the son. Just like the shepherd had joy in finding the sheep, and the woman had joy in finding the coin, this father takes great joy in finding this son. So we begin at the beginning. What if God finds me and he's disappointed in the value I'm bringing? What do we learn from the parable of the lost son? That's not possible because of what the Father is like. Not because of what we're like, but because of what the Father is like. For lost ones to come back to Him is to be received with uh, great joy and celebration. Look at the older son. Look, these many years I have served you have never disobeyed your command. What has he just described? Someone who serves and never disobeys. What kind of relationship does he have with the Father? He has described what a servant is. He has just described himself as a servant. Listen, I am really good at doing my job. 
not messing it up, and not leaving. That's an employee. That's a servant. And, he, and what he wanted for his service was reimbursement. I have worked hard for you, and you have never once even let me have one young goat to celebrate with my friends. And the, and the father was nice here. He probably was going, uh, what friends are those? Um, no, I'm kidding. I don't know if you have friends or not. So he's, he's a servant. So here's what's funny. The lost son returns and finds relationship with the father that is defined as sonship. He leaves and says, I'm going to go back to the father and at least offer to be a servant, and the father will not have it. He says, no, I want a son. Here's the robe, here's the ring, here's the sandals, let's have a party. The older son who has that relationship of sonship available to him does not want it. What does he want? He wants to be a servant. He wants to curry favor with the father through faithful religious service. I've done good for you, dad, so now you got to do good for me. And that's not a father-son relationship. That's a master-servant relationship. When given those two options, the father has the option of a relationship of sonship and a relationship of servanthood. Which one does he delight in? Sonship, doesn't he? You notice the difference. The one that brings the father great joy where he says, let's have a party, is the one who relates with the father as a son. Not based on who's earned what. Have I curried favor? Have I done all the right things? In fact, what has the lost son done for the father? Taken his money and given it to prostitutes. That's what he's done. What's the older son done? Stayed at home and worked hard. But what he missed was the relationship with the father as a son. The father derives no joy in the older son acting like a servant. Derives no joy in the older son not acting like his son. So the older son leaves and returns as a son, and, and he and the father enjoy great joy. Did I say older son? If, if I did, I was wrong. It was the younger son. And the older one stayed, and he might as, he just as soon as well have left because he had no relationship with the father. Now, many people have said that this story doesn't have an ending. This parable doesn't have an ending. Like maybe it was just really getting good and then uh, it was time for dinner. And, uh, and, and Jesus said, oh, I'll finish it up later. Uh, no, it doesn't. It ends precisely where Jesus meant for it to end because the climax of this story is to contrast the older son and the younger son and their relationship with the father and see how the two respond to who the father is. The, the younger son is one who responds to the father's nature knowing he is a dad. And he relates to him as his generous dad and he has relationship with him. The climax of the story is when the older son refuses to celebrate with the father. The story comes to its head when all of a sudden we realize this older son actually is not the son at all. The son this father desires is the younger son who has returned who wants relationship with him. The climax of the story is when the father invites him in to celebrate, and the older son says, absolutely not. I will never go in there and eat with those sinners. And that's what those religious leaders were doing at 15, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Absolutely, we're not going in there and eating with those people. And Jesus said, but, but they're sons. And you're going to be on the outside, and you have missed the father. God is God of the lost. He takes great joy in finding. He takes great joy uh, in in outcast. Okay, a couple of quick things to make note of by way of conclusion, and then we're going to close 
with a closing uh, song. Uh, many of us ought to, and I think this is a good thing, we say, you know what, as a Christian, someone who's followed those God, who is seeking to know the Lord, I want to be like Jesus. And we take great delight when we find out other people want to be like Jesus. And then we are greatly offended when we discover that other people seem to think they can become like Jesus without becoming like me. Isn't that annoying? When other people who seemingly are following Jesus have different opinions about different things, and it's annoying. What we really want, I think deep down, sarcasm light is illuminated. Um, we really don't want people to be like Jesus. We want people to be like me being like Jesus. And you want people to be like Jesus like you do. As it turns out, all of us can seek to be like Christ, and we still are not going to be the same as one another. And what we must do is have this understanding of how God is approaching you and me. He's approaching you and me as father, delighted in his sons and daughters who are returning to him. And so we must also participate in the celebration of others who are coming to the father, even when they are very, very different than us, even when they have different perspectives on the world than us, even when they might have different views on how things should operate. We should be taking great joy when people are coming to the Father, even if they're not like me. In fact, we can bet they're not like you and I. I have heard about something that happened once. I think it was one time in church history, I read a church history book one time, it was a long time ago, uh, there was an argument over church carpet and a church split. Is it, I think it was just the one time, right? One time last week, right? You say, how in the world could people in the church get so upset with each other? Because at some point we decided to stop celebrating that we're not home yet. And the father would delight in yahoos like us. At some point we get into our head that we actually have it all together. And this so-and-so doesn't have it all together. And his opinion doesn't matter. And if he gets it his way, well, I'm taking my ball and going home. And this happens when at some point we shift from being sons and we say, I think I know how things ought to be done, and I'm going to look down my long religious nose, tell people how it ought to be, and instead of staying in the celebration, we become the older son. Second thing, God has great joy over repenters. And here's the one thing I want to try and be clear on about repenting. What is repenting? That's a fancy theological word maybe, and don't always know what it means, but it's a very simple mean. Word, what it means is, uh, I'm living my way, and my way is killing me. And repenting is saying, you know what? I don't want to live my way. I want to know the Father. I'm going to turn and, and go His way, right? And so all of us uh, in here uh, would say, okay, I understand. Repenting means this is my way. I'm going to turn this way. Repenting means, in some ways, to turn. I'm going to go God's way. And you say, well, I want to do my thing and have God's way. Well, you can't do that unless you cut yourself in half, then you're dead. So repenting is saying, I don't want to do it my way. I want to go God's way. So somebody says, they come in, they get saved and say, I believe in Jesus, forgives me for my sins. Yahoo, party, kill the fattened calf. And you're living on. And what's great about being a Christian is you never sin again. Okay, good. So we got a couple of sinners in here. Good. Would have been awkward for me. So here's how you Christians, you Christians are thinking. God took great joy when I repented to become a Christian. But now that I'm a Christian and I'm still struggling with sin, every time I repent, the joy's gone. That was for the first time, okay? Now you get grumpy God. Okay, the joy is the first time, but now that you have to, you have to keep coming back, forget about it. Happy God was the first time. It's grumpy God for the rest of my life. God, and we come scraping. Oh, Lord, I promise to never do it again. Yada, yada, yada. And we just assume 
that the, the father who falls on, him, on the son's neck in love and grace was just the first shot. And from then on out, it's just going to be a whole lot of this. And this is how we see God tapping his foot, really. Again? Anybody see the God that way in your mind sometimes? That's not what the parable is saying. God takes great joy in repenters. The sin you've been struggling with for a decade, you had to repent over on your way in today because you were coming to church and it felt weird to come to church without saying sorry. He was still delighted to receive your, your confession and, great, and pour out his grace again. He's still delighted. He's still killing the fattened calf. He will always take great joy in us turning to him and say, God, I need your grace again today. Always keep repenting, he's still happy. He still takes delight in pouring out his grace. Ephesians 2, 7, what did it tell us his goal is? To show off his stacks of grace. So every time we're coming to him uh, for more grace, he says, turns out I love showing off how gracious I am. Finally, the son experiences great joy because he was audacious in how he approached his father. He had the gall to return to his father. He had the uh, presumption to return to his father what, because of what his father was like. And I would encourage each of us to be audacious in our repentance and confession. God, we need your grace again today. The older son who was seeking to have a relationship with God based on a long list of do's and don'ts, his relationship with the Father was joyless. Absolutely joyless. And if that's the definition of our relationship with God, it might be we need to examine, am I seeking God because he's a gracious Father, or am I seeking God because I think I'm well-behaved? God is God of the lost. He takes joy in the finding. He takes joy in outcasts like you and me.